Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Emergency Trauma Mamas Podcast. And I, as always, am your host, and I'm very pleased that you chose to download this episode and that you're joining me to talk some more about everybody's favorite trauma. Since it is trauma season, we're going to talk about geriatric trauma today and some pathophysiological changes that obviously occur in this type of population and some considerations when we're taking care of these types of patients. So last episode we talked about pediatric hyperthermia and today we're talking about geriatric trauma and probably next episode we'll look at some other type of trauma, um, perhaps pediatric. Um, And feel free to let me know. You can actually um, leave me a message on the Anchor podcast in the web link You can just leave me a voice message and let me know some topics that you're interested in. So please feel free to do that. So let's talk a little bit about the patient population that we're talking about today, which is basically geriatric. So 65 years or older. However, I'm sure you've met some patients that are maybe 60 and pretty ill with some comorbidities, which is what predisposes them to a lot of different traumas to begin with. So we know that with this particular type of population, that trauma is basically the seventh leading cause of death for the geriatric folks. And that's after like heart disease, cancer, COPD, stroke, diabetes, and pneumonia. And that is actually a stat from the CDC in 2014. So we know that because we do so much for trauma, we do so much uh, prevention. You know, we want to prevent a patient from becoming a trauma patient before they end up in our recess room. So we know that through the ACS, we do a lot of fall prevention with the elderly. However, we also know that falling is what we commonly see. So it's definitely the most common cause of geriatric trauma. And one in three falls um, typically are resulting because of their gait changes, uh, their reduced reaction times, and sensory impairment. And so if you think about those types of things that occur as a patient gets older, um, it does make sense that, you know, unfortunately when they're driving, they do have a reduced reaction time. So you take a 67-year-old driver versus I don't know, say a 37-year-old driver, and put them in the same exact driving scenario. And obviously, you're going to see a geriatric trauma patient probably be much more critically injured as a result of the fact that um, perhaps they couldn't see um, as far as, you know, ocular changes and that type of thing. They couldn't see even far enough ahead to know what was coming for them to perhaps swerve so they had a reduced reaction time. 
um, and sensory impairment. Sometimes if they can't hear um, and for whatever reason, they, you know, accidentally left their uh, hearing aid at home, but yet they're driving. So, you know, when you think about all of these things, all these little caveats that can kind of work against your geriatric patient, in addition to the fact that they're older. Um, so when they get hurt, even just a little bit, um, it doesn't bode well because we're going to talk a little bit more about compensatory mechanisms in a moment. But when you think about all of these little things that kind of work against you as you get older, um, it does make sense why we see a lot more critically ill and injured trauma patients because when they get hurt just a little bit, that could kind of be, um, unfortunately, the straw that breaks the camel's back. So if they have comorbidities in addition to the fact that we'll just say they got a femur fracture or any kind of long bone fracture. It does mean that they are more predisposed to potentially dying from that type of injury. Whereas again, if you had a 37 year old or a 47 year old who sustained the same kind of MVC, same mechanism injury, everything was exactly the same. Um, obviously your 47 or younger person is going to do better um, because of the predisposition that the geriatric population has. So the next common cause of trauma for the geriatric population we know is MBCs as well. And again, what feeds into that is hearing and vision impairment, um, decreased reaction time, uh, cognitive dysfunction. Unfortunately, a lot of our geriatric patients are on different kinds of medications that kind of muddle their brains a little bit. For instance, oh, I don't know, TCAs, uh, different kinds of drugs. Um, there's actually a beers criteria list that is basically for prescribers and APNs and people who are putting patients on drugs that kind of says, you know, if you have a patient who's over this age, you probably shouldn't put them on this drug. So if you're curious, you can actually give it a Google and see it's called the beers criteria list. And it's a list of drugs that geriatric patients should actually not be put on because of these potential issues. So obviously you do need to interview the patient if you are um, an NP or somebody who's prescribing, you know, do you still drive a vehicle? Because if they do, um, you really need to be thinking even further, you know, along the lines of as a prescriber, should I be, you know, prescribing this drug to this patient? So about 25% of the geriatric patients that we do see will have chest trauma. And so when you think about a patient with chest trauma, we're talking, you know, flail chest, rib fractures. Think about a geriatric patient with a rib fracture. What kind of compensatory mechanisms are they going to have? Um, let's say they have a comorbidity of, hmm, I don't know, COPD. So you can see where that could be um, a potential situation where your patient's not going to have a good outcome because of um, their comorbidities. Um, so just a rib fracture for maybe you or I would be no biggie, right? But for that patient, that one patient um, with an underlying pathophysiological disease process of COPD, yeah, it could actually end up, you know, almost turning fatal if, if they're in... Um, a situation where they're not even, you know, getting aggressive pulmonary toilet hygiene or anything like that, where 
you know, if they're not put on a vent or, or their peep isn't high enough or, you know, they don't have someone to fix their rib fractures because they're not in a trauma facility and they don't get transferred out in a timely manner, that, that rib fracture could end up being um, potentially fatal. So let's get on into a patient case study um, to give you more of a feel of what we're talking about here. So you are going to get um, an 88-year-old Caucasian woman who's presenting to the ED status post NBC. She's a non-restrained driver involved in a head-on collision, no airbag deployment. Does not say speed. Um, she's C-collar backordered, uh, complaining of right shoulder and right upper arm pain. Medical history is positive for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, CAD, uh, post-dent placement. She is currently just taking clopidogrel um, or Plavix. So paramedics reported that she was very confused on scene and did not remember getting into her car and driving on the highway. Hmm. So um, she thought she had a syncopal event. That's their words, not ours. <laughs> Obviously, a patient wouldn't say that. She denies uh drinking, smoking, uh, using THC or anything else. And the last thing she remembered was taking things out of her storage shed and putting them in the trunk of her vehicle. So she's arriving into the trauma room. Vitals are as follows. BP's 128 over 66, pulse 70, respirs 20, pulse ox is 97% on room air. Um, body temp, 97.5 Fahrenheit. So H-E-E-N-T, we'll just kind of move through the systems here. Heads, uh, normal cephalic, EOMs intact, lids are normal, pupils pearl, one to two intact. Um, she's got a small, um, one centimeter laceration superior to her left lateral eyebrow with some surrounding soft tissue swelling and developing ecchymosis. So, uh, TMs are equal by lat, ears look good, nares are patent, mucous membranes, skins are pink, warm, dry, everything else, um, and her mouth is good. Trach is midline. Uh, she's just got a little mid-cervical tenderness upon palpation, but no step-offs or anything crazy. No palpable deformity noted. Uh, heart tones. Normal heart tones are normal. Um, normal rubs, murmurs, or gallops. And she's normal sinus on the monitor. And what did we say her rate was? Initially, we said it was 70. So... Um, bilat. Lung sounds like clear and equal bilat. Anterior, posterior, lateral. And... No increased work of breathing that you note. Chest wall is atraumatic, symmetrical chest rise and fall. Um, no palpable deformity in the rib area. Uh, abdomen, she does have some tenderness in the right lower quadrant, suprapubic area, a little bit to the left upper quadrant and left lower quadrant. Um, it's not rigid. There's no rebound tenderness or guarding. Um, Abdomen does not appear to have any seatbelt marks, and it's atraumatic. Musculoskeletal, she's moving all extremities. They're warm and profuse. CMS is intact. Um, she does have some positive tenderness to her mid-lower TL region, but no palpable step-offs when you end up log-rolling her. Her right shoulder has some tenderness that extended into her proximal humerus area, and she does have some bilat knee contusions by you know, on, on both sides. Obviously, it said she wasn't belted. Um, it didn't tell us how fast, but it couldn't have been that fast if she looks this good, right? Uh, her GCS is 14 out of 15, of course. She's oriented to person, but confused about time and place when she first arrived. But now, since she's been reoriented, she's remembering a little bit more. 
Um, she is speaking clearly, no slurred speech, alert, awake, yada, 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 looks good following commands. So what are some things that we initially want to worry about with this patient? Well, one thing you really want to think about in my mind is shock. Um, Typically, you know, we think about shock, we think about, okay, hypovolemic shock, bleeding from somewhere. You know, obviously this lady's going to get a fast exam, chest, abdomen, you know, we're going to look at her abdomen with a fast, but chest film, pelvis film real quick, because she does have a few areas of um, tenderness and not being belted, Um, being osteoporotic, it doesn't say, you know, she's 88, so she's just prone to being osteoporotic. Um... Based on her history, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, CAD, post-dent placement. Um, it just says Plavix, but let's just talk a little bit about dynamics of shock with a patient who is older. So do you feel that these patients are going to come in with a blood pressure of 70 over 30 and a heart rate of 120? Um, typically, you know, when we are in different stages of shock, we present different ways. However, our geriatric patients what are they all typically on that's going to prevent that compensatory mechanism? Beta blockers, right? So pulse of 70 for this lady? Hmm, well, that could be as tachycardic as she's going to get, right? Even though it doesn't say that she's on Plavix or it says she's on Plavix only, what if for whatever reason, you know, the medics just got that information, extrapolated it from somewhere, but... Lo and behold, you pull up Epic, and she's like on Metoprolol, Excel. So, you know, at 70, it's tacky for this lady, right? Because she normally lives at like 45, 50-ish, depending on the patient. So, again, think about that. Um, Think outside of the box with these patients, because they're not going to have that normal baroreceptor response of the tachycardia oh you know i'm gonna get real tachycardic to try to compensate for the lack of blood volume that we normally see when we think about the ras system and everything that potentiates it's different with these patients right because their renal function isn't as good you know their cardiac function isn't as good um, particularly if your patient already has, you know, a reduced ejection fraction or they're on beta blocker, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, um, those types of meds obviously are going to blockade. They're going to have a certain blockade depending on their mechanism of action on your patient's ability to get tachycardic on you. So don't get lulled into that false sense of security when you're looking at a geriatric trauma patient saying, oh, well, their pulse is 70, they're good. Um, maybe not. So think about that. Um, although it does say, you know, her initial blood pressure is 128 over 86. If in fact, this lady is bleeding from somewhere, which I suspect that she is because she's on a thinner, um, you know, the blood pressure can only look good for so long, right? In addition to the other changes that we see from, um, this geriatric population, remember too, that, they have decreased brain mass, so atrophy, right? So you've got an old brain, and I tend to explain it to people when I'm, learn- when I'm teaching about trauma. It's like a pinball and a Tupperware bowl, like a really big Tupperware bowl, right? Because the cranial vault, it all stays the same size, but you've got the brain matter and everything that tends to atrophy over time, so then you've got all of this extra space, right? 
So any little bit of movement, whether it's front impact, side in, doesn't matter what the impact is. Mechanism of injury dictates if there's all that extra space in the brain, um, you're more likely to tear in the meninges and whether it's um, going to be a vein or artery, um, you're going to have some kind of head bleed, right? So just think about that too. When you see a patient and they're a geriatric patient and they're like not sure if they hit their head or not, guess what? They should be getting a scan, right? Because when you look at ACS's TQIP geriatric trauma management guidelines, which are online, it talks a lot about all of those different things. Um, as far, it actually has the beers criteria listed too. I forgot about that. So um, on in appendix one, it has the beers criteria for potentially inappropriate meds for use in adults. And it talks a lot about different things that we should be doing for these patients. But even in your ATLS and your TNCC and all the courses that we go through, we do talk a little bit about that, just under special populations, but think about that. So they've got the old brain, um, atrophy, decreased brain matter, or decreased brain mass, decrease. There's a lot of space in there, room for things to tear. So they don't need like a huge coup, contra coup type mechanism of injury to have a head bleed, right? So we know they can stroke. Um, you know, as far as airway goes, we know that they're their airways change. We know that dentures get in the way, you know, potentially there could be a foreign body because of that. Um, so a lot of things when you're thinking about, you know, intubating these patients too, because their airways are fragile, right? They're very fragile. Um, their tongues can get like bigger. They've got cervical arthritis, um, even though they're, they're placed in C-spine anyway. Um, but they've got the smaller oral aperture. The opening is, is smaller. Their tongue is bigger. Again, lots of issues, right? So even when you're thinking about principles of airway management with these patients, it's not cut and dry. It is not easy. It's not, um, you know, as easy as just intubating a 28-year-old male with, you know, no, no, no problems whatsoever. So there's a lot of issues going on as well. Um, so then that's what we think about. Don't get lulled into that false sense of security just because the BP is not, you know, super low, and the heart rate looks good, think about what kind of meds that they're taking. So that's that's something that I think about. When I think about hypovolemic shock, I think, ooh, yeah, what kind of medications um, is this patient on? And of course, in the middle of a trauma recess, who has time for that, right? Nobody. So you just have to, you know, potentially think, oh, his heart rate 70, you know, he's probably on a calcium channel blocker or beta blocker so this is as tachycardic as your patient's going to get which is basically their body's telling you screaming at you um, I'm in trouble already so although you know we think about obvious head trauma you know she's following commands this that and the other but just based on the fact that she's on Plavix and her GCS was okay but she needs like really repeat neurals right she needs repeat neurals and then a head CT um, with any changes so those are the types of things you got to think about with those patients um, and again so remember when you're thinking about the RAS system that has to do with the kidneys too right so what if they are on dialysis or what if they are um, you know have decreased renal function or GFR for whatever reason a lot of our patients don't have the best renal function, right? So everything that's supposed to happen that we normally see, 
you know, the Renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, all of that system that you're like, uh, yeah, I learned about that in nursing school, but I forgot. Look it up. It's so pertinent to shock and how we compensate in our bodies that this patient doesn't have the ability to do that, right? So your geriatric patients, they are just not able to stimulate a lot of the compensatory mechanisms that we would normally see. So they already have decreased heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output, so they can't get that tachycardic response. Um, Chances are they've already got, you know, decreased renal function. So there's two strikes there, right? In addition to that, you add the thinners. So that's actually something else that's going to lead them down a path of more bleeding, which we don't want with a patient who's hypovolemic, who's a trauma patient, who's had a severe mechanism of injury, and now they're bleeding more, right? So this might be a patient that your ED doc or your trauma surgeon or whoever might pull the trigger on MTP sooner rather than later, which I highly recommend because they're going to run into a lot of issues, right? And so if you're using Rotem or TEG in your trauma center, you're able to look at their profile and see where they're at and make adjustments as needed. But if they're, you don't know where they are in their anti-quag, you know, we don't know where they are when they hit the door. So we need to know, but we also need to replace that volume. So it is possible that um, your trauma surgeon may pull the trigger on that MTP a little sooner rather than later. Um, Because of course, any evidence of cranial bleeding, you've got to reverse the coagulopathy, right? In addition to that, remember what else we have an issue with, with our trauma lethal triad, which is hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. So mentioning a patient who's already on a thinner, um, and then they're bleeding, and then they're already in a coagulopathy state because they're in hypovolemic shock. What do you think they can do as far as their body warmth goes? Do you think that a patient who's older has the ability to keep themselves warmer or cooler. They have lost a lot of their their skin changes, right? Their skin changes as they get older. So they're not even able to compensate that way either. So again, you take their clothes off, you know, strip them, flip them, keep them warm, period. And think about it even more with these geriatric trauma patients because they cannot tolerate the slightest bit of getting cold. Um, They're even more intolerant to coagulopathy and being cold in the environment than any of our other trauma patients. Like we don't want any of our trauma patients to get cold and go into that lethal trauma triad of death. However, geriatric trauma patients, they don't have their skin. Their skin isn't even, you know, very thick. So they're, you know, your skin gets thinner they're not able to have as much fat to keep themselves warm. So that's why when you go over to grandma's house, the heat's already at 85 and you're like, oh, it's so hot in here. And they're like, well, I'm cold. Um, So that makes sense, right? So think about your trauma patient. When they roll in, you know, if you're not sweating, then, you know, you're not thinking about your patient. So um, let's roll on through to what your patient's final outcome uh, looks like here. So the patient does end up having um, evidence of a cranial bleed because obviously they're on Plavix. Um, So they ended up going to um, a subcute rehab center 
per the recommendations of the PT and OT staff, after they were admitted in the hospital, they, you know, they got a repeat CT and all of that turned out okay, but um, they, they did reverse the coagulopathy, but because of the TBI, they did have to end up going to a rehab center, so... And ended up that the neuropsychology evaluation indicated that the patient lacked the cognitive capacity to make informed decisions as a result of this incident. So follow-up TBI assessments with the neuropsychology team post-discharge were recommended. Um, This patient did not require invasive treatment, but she did present with many of the challenges common amongst our geriatric patients. So notably, of course, are the comorbidities, uh, medication regimen, of course, with the Plavix. She did have some memory issues upon arrival that persisted throughout her stay, but that was, you know, actually just muddying the waters for the physicians because they're like, is this old? Is this new? We don't know. Um, all of those things made life a lot more difficult for the neuro team. But finally, she was not discharged back to her baseline living situation. So she actually required additional resources, status post, NBC being a trauma patient, um, to help her accommodate. And again, thinking about that in and of itself too. So just one incident, obviously a pretty serious crash, really impacted this patient's life. And she wasn't even able to go back into her home. So you have to think about that. And also, again, survival rates. You know, for geriatric trauma patients, if they're, they arrive at a level one, two, or three, you know, their likelihood is 30% higher um, to survive than patients who are not treated in a trauma center because we have better resources, right? For instance, just the rib fracture. Well, a trauma center is going to have a lot different approach to rib fractures for geriatric elderly trauma patient than a non-trauma center. Um, Again, you've got pulmonologists that specialize in patients who are trauma and COPD and rib fractures. And so you see how 30% higher is pretty significant. And that's actually um, from a 2015 statistic that I was able to find. So just a couple little key points and we'll wrap this up. Um, Geriatric trauma patients, you know, are a little bit more tricky, right? They're not straightforward because... They have such a changing physiology within their body, and they, they present a different way. So, you know, we're always taught hypovolemic shock presents like this, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage, you know, this is irreversible shock. This is what this looks like. Your patient is going to present differently based on their physiology. So when you get that geriatric trauma patient, think, oh, their heart rate 70. Um, well, that could, perhaps that could be as tachycardic as they're going to get. So err on the side of suspicion. Um, don't wait to be surprised until that BP drops, right? And again, your trauma doc might say, hey, let's pull the trigger on the MTP. We know they're on Plavix or any other kind of thinner. Um, or you could always use, you know, reversals or whatever you have in your facility. But those things might occur sooner rather than later. And again, the comorbidities, depending on your patient, are always going to contrib- contribute to their outcome. So they can also be much more difficult to manage in their inpatient care. Um, throughout that course in the hospital, their length of stay could be progressively longer, right, because of the complications. So think about those things, especially when you're transferring your patient out. Um, if you're not a trauma center, but if you are a receiving trauma center, 
think about those comorbidities too. And again, if you have a chance, you know, take a look at the um, ACS TQIP Geriatric Trauma Management Guidelines, which I, like I say, they're online and they're super helpful. So I feel like that really gives you a good idea of what the EBP is stating of what we should be doing for our geriatric trauma patients. And just keep in mind that they're very frequently the ones that are ill and injured. So we need to learn how to take the best care of them possible. So that is all for today. I thank you for listening and good night, good morning, and good evening. Bye-bye.